This episode is brought to you by Sprint. Confused by how wireless carriers talk about their networks? Sprint gets it. The truth is, all networks are great. Try Sprint for 30 days, and if you're not 100% satisfied, simply return your phone, and they'll refund your phone costs, service charges, and related fees. No gimmicks. Try Sprint today. Applies to new lines of service. Select exclusion supply. See Sprint.com slash returns for details. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today, as always, is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing pretty good on this lovely Saturday morning, which we record, or Friday night. Or Friday night, depending on where we are and who we are. We don't have long until CrimeCon, which has me both stressed and excited. I'm excited for the obvious reasons, but I'm stressed because we have a lot to do before we go. The obvious reasons saying me. Of course. That's the main reason I'm going. No offense to the other true crime podcasters out there, but hanging out with Allie is the point of the weekend. If you're also coming to CrimeCon in order to hang out with Allie, come see us on Podcast Row. We'll definitely be there at our station on Friday from 1 to 2.30, and then on Saturday morning from 9 to 10.30. We're going to have a nice gift bag we're raffling off with some Insight merch, a true crime book, some other goodies. So come say hi, grab a sticker, enter to win the gift bag. And people have asked us about meetups. And like we said in our last episode, we've decided we're not going to host our own in-person meetup, but we will keep everyone up to date on where we're going to be. There are a lot of meetups, so we're kind of going to meet up hop a little there and hopefully see everybody. We will be doing a Facebook Live virtual meetup on Sunday, June 11th. The time is still to be determined. We're going to answer your questions about us, about the podcast, cases we've covered. We'll take questions, obviously, during the Facebook Live, but we're also taking them in advance for anyone who can't watch the video live but wants to watch it later and have their questions answered. Just email those to insightfulpod at gmail.com and specify that they're for the Facebook Live. So enough of that, let's get to today's story. And I want to thank the author and the publisher of the book, The Foundling. They sent us the book to cover this case on our podcast. And the fastest way to get a topic on our podcast and to earn our love is to send us books. We're going to be talking about the kidnapping of Paul Franzak, the foundling who was returned to the Franzaks and raised as their missing son, and a bit of that man's journey into finding the truth of what really happened. Let's start with the Franzak family. In 1962, Chester and Dora Franzak married. It wasn't long before they started a family. Unfortunately, in 1963, their firstborn son was born still. But it wasn't long before Dora was pregnant again, and their second son was born alive and healthy in the very, very early morning hours of April 26th, 1964, at Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago. They named him Paul Joseph. As was usual in those days, Dora shared her recovery room with a roommate named Joyce, and as was also usual, the baby spent much of his time in the nursery being brought in to his mother for feedings. Around nine in the morning on April 27th, a nurse brought in little Paul, now one day old, for Dora to feed. 
A half hour later, another nurse came in the room quietly, walked over to Dora, where she was feeding Paul, lifted the blanket Paul was wrapped in, and looked at him, and then she turned and walked out of the room. According to both Dora and her roommate Joyce, the nurse appeared to be in her late 30s or early 40s. Her brown hair was graying. She dressed much like a nurse. She had the white dress, the white stocking shoes, but she was not wearing a nurse's cap, but she was wearing a hairnet. Dora found her complete silence odd because she didn't say anything the entire time she was in that room, but it didn't really alarm her so much. Joyce, on the other hand, got the impression that the woman wasn't the warm maternal type that you usually would see in a labor and delivery and baby nurse, and her demeanor was odd within that setting. Later, the woman dressed as the nurse re-entered the room and told Dora that the pediatrician needed to see the baby for an exam. And Dora was taken aback a bit. Since babies did spend most of their time in the nursery, doctors generally examined the babies while they were in there not to interrupt their feedings and their time with their mothers. But this was a nurse, and who was Dora to question these policies and methods, so she handed Paul over to the nurse. The nurse, with Paul in her arms, walked out of the room, down four flights of stairs, and out the hospital doors. She was observed by a student nurse who reported it to her supervisor. They checked the nursery. They checked Dora's room without telling Dora what they were, what or who they were looking for. And they searched the hospital for about two hours. Some reports say it took 45 minutes before the search started, though I have the impression from the book that the search started immediately, but quietly. Shortly before 3 p.m., the police were called and a door-to-door search of the area around the hospital was conducted. And by midnight, a thousand people had been interviewed. But by this point, it was far too late. Shortly after walking out of the hospital, the woman got into a cab. She traveled several blocks before getting out of the cab. In a contemporary news article, it was reported that the man had picked her up from the hospital three times in the past several weeks, Also, she didn't hail the cab. She had called ahead from a cab stand. She said the baby was sick. She was taking him to her own doctor. She didn't trust the hospital doctors. And the driver reported she was dressed as a nurse, but appeared too old for the newborn to have been her own. After he dropped her off, another witness reported that a woman in a nurse's uniform and holding a baby wrapped in a blanket that matched the hospital blanket was seen standing on the corner near where the cab dropped her off, and the witness had the impression, for whatever reason, that she was waiting on the bus. And that's it. All Chester and Dora had left of their newborn son was a hospital picture taken the day before. His hand and footprints hadn't been taken yet. Before we get on with the story, we want to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor really happy to once again have Blue Apron as a returning sponsor of Insight. They are the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the U.S. Being pregnant, having several children, and working, I really appreciate that Blue Apron brings fresh food to my door. They support a more sustainable food system using a partnership with over 150 local farms, fisheries, ranchers all across the U.S. They ship the exact amount of ingredients I need for each recipe, and that reduces food waste. For those who spend a lot at restaurants or high-end grocery chains, you can now spend under $10 a person for a delicious meal. Two upcoming meals that I'm really 
excited about are the peach honey glazed chicken with mashed sweet potatoes, collard greens, and Thai basil, and the spiced zucchini enchiladas with creamy lime and tomato rice. Blue Apron saves me time because I'm not having to go out and pick out all the fresh ingredients myself. The recipes are easy, step-by-step. It's all pre-proportioned. It just makes it easier for me, and I'm at a time in my life where I need easy. Blue Apron has a freshness guarantee. If they send you an ingredient and it's not fresh, they'll make it right. I can't speak a whole lot to this guarantee because... I've never had to use it. Everything they've sent me has been perfect. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash site. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash site. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Now, without paternity leave being a thing in the 1960s, Chester was at work while all of this happened. He was contacted by police and he went straight to the hospital. When Chester arrived, he was tasked with breaking the news to Dora with the authorities because Dora was unaware that anything was wrong this entire time. Now, like you said before, Charlie, the search was massive from the start. Every employee of the hospital was looked at. Everyone with a nursing license was looked at. This seems standard in such a situation, though. Another angle police investigated early on was that the kidnapper was a grieving mother herself. Possibly she suffered a miscarriage or a stillbirth, just as Dora had herself a year before. Investigators went through 18 months of hospital records of women who suffered a pregnancy loss. They used the eyes and ears of the community as well. The one photo of Paul was released to the public, along with photos of the blanket, a sample of his hospital ID bracelet, although I imagine that would have been the first thing discarded. They also released photos of a similar outfit to what the baby was last seen wearing. A notice was placed at the hospital hoping to find additional witnesses, and it turned out that Paul wasn't the only baby this woman looked at. Other mothers reported a nurse silently coming into their rooms and looking at their baby. At least one woman asked her what she was doing, and she simply walked out of the room. This gives me the impression that she was looking for particular features, possibly a child that could easily pass as hers, or maybe she was looking for a mother that wouldn't question what she was doing. Postal workers were supposed to keep an eye out for families who suddenly had a baby appear without knowing the woman was pregnant. Guards at the county jail interviewed every woman who had been arrested in the days after the kidnapping, and they were looking at the event that maybe the kidnapper was trying to lay low behind bars. And the leads did come in. Every person with a baby or a nurse's outfit that seemed the slightest bit odd, they were called in and followed up on. Because the woman moved confidently around the hospital and appeared to know the schedule, they believed she must have been at least somewhat familiar with it. Today, feeding an infant on demand isn't uncommon, but in those days, it was standard for nurses to try to get the baby on a schedule immediately so she would know when babies would be out of the nursery and in their mother's rooms. Yet no one recognised her while she was in the maternity area. So it's possible she worked there previously a long time ago or she worked in a different area. The press speculated that police were narrowing in on former employees at Michael Reese, particularly those with a history of mental illness and those who had lost children or never had them themselves. 
But it's also possible that she had never worked there before, but she cased the place, for lack of a better term. I mean, if she was walking around in a nurse's uniform, she could have just been walking around the hospital in the days, weeks, months before the kidnapping. From when she was first seen in the hospital until she walked out the back door, it's been concluded she was there at least four hours. Also, the day before the kidnapping, a hospital housekeeper in the maternity wing reported a nurse offering to help her fold some linens, and that was unusual. Nurses generally have enough work of their own that they're not taking on basic housekeeping tasks as well. A report came that three months previous to the kidnapping, a woman dressed in a nurse's outfit was kicked out of another hospital in the area. They realized that she didn't work there. But that wasn't before she was able to get into the nursery, hold babies, and even comment to the other nurses about how clean that nursery was in comparison to Michael Reese Hospital. So it is odd that someone who wasn't a nurse in a nurse's outfit was in another maternity ward commenting specifically about Michael Reese Hospital. I just find it strange that the other nurses never reported a strange nurse just wandering around the hospital. They would know the other employees, you would think. I would think that, especially at this other hospital, that they were would have been alarmed that someone managed to get in, but I can also understand they wouldn't have wanted the press of reporting it to the police that they let somebody get that close to people's babies. It's possible she may have been making the rounds at more than just Michael Reese. Was she trying to figure out which hospital would be easiest to go through undetected and leave? This may have been a several months long plan that led this methodical kidnapper to Dora's room that day. Dora stayed in the hospital for eight days, which was longer than usual at the time. The doctors were in no rush to discharge her because they wanted to keep an eye on her after this terrible trauma just a year after having lost her first baby. They may have also been protecting her from the media onslaught that they would have known was coming. This case was huge. It was a sensational story and reporters were stalking out both the hospital and the Fronzac's home. Sending her home from the hospital into such chaos and scrutiny was surely weighing on their minds at the time. But when it was time for her to go home, she walked out of the hospital to face 30 or more reporters throwing questions at her. One asked if she had a message for the kidnapper and she simply said, please return the baby. And in the apartment, she mostly locked herself away, only finally starting to leave once a day to attend morning mass. FBI agents were in the home around the clock for three weeks. They were hoping the kidnapper would try and make contact. The Fronzacs did live modestly. They were both first-generation Americans used to blue-collar work, so you would imagine that they wouldn't likely be a target for a ransom like we saw in the Graham Thorne case, but I guess it couldn't be ruled out. But not a single odd or suspicious call came, and the agents, they eventually left. But Dora didn't leave. She didn't leave at all in the event the call did come. She was also understandably depressed, In one article, she said some days she could barely make it through. In another, she said her goals for the day were to do a little bit of washing and try to eat. The leads and tips became fewer and Paul's first birthday passed without any solid leads. 
And that's where we would leave the kidnapping of Paul Fronzak and talk about the discovery of the man who would eventually be raised as Paul Fronzak. And we'll talk about him after this quick word from our next sponsor. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough. If you want to find the best hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. ZipRecruiter's website shows trending career fields, cities and searches. ZipRecruiter already has 9 million resumes that you can search through in their database. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and you can watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. There is no need to deal with emails or calls to your office. You can quickly screen candidates, rate them and hire the right person fast. And if you happen to run into any issues, ZipRecruiter's friendly and human support staff will be there to help. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs to ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash site. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash site. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash site. On July 2nd, 1965, in Newark, New Jersey, someone pushed a stroller with a young toddler along the sidewalk in front of a busy and, I'd say, upscale shopping center. That person then walked away without the baby. It would be two hours before someone called the police around 5 p.m. with the report of an abandoned child. The caller, however, refused to give their name. The little one was taken to the hospital for examination. Overall, he seemed to be healthy, though he had what appeared to be some significant cold symptoms, and he would later come down with the measles. So those cold symptoms were likely the prodromal symptoms of the measles. It was determined that he was about 14 months old. While the police took on the task of finding out who he was, the Bureau of Children's Services took on the task of providing for him. This young boy was taken to a home run by a married couple in their 40s, Claire and Fred Eckert, and their daughter Janet, who was about 17, I want to say at the time. They specialized in taking in children who were considered unclaimed, but were waiting for their adoptive placements. This home had taken in about 100 babies in the 10 years, and from what I can tell was a fortunate place for a young boy to land. They had a full schedule for the day that kept the household running smoothly. Claire and Fred held and played with the babies and even took pictures and kept notes on the children's personalities and accomplishments. I know this is a big gap for many kids who have passed through foster care. They may not have baby pictures from their birth families or they may not have foster parents who keep a journal for them, but this wasn't the case in this home. Even years later, their daughter Janet, she would remember details about this young boy arriving in their home. We know that this boy was gentle with the younger kids He was the type that found joy in the littlest things and was precocious with his language. 
We also know that he was absolutely terrified of young men, and this was noted in his file. But he was fine with Fred, a man in his 40s. In the secure environment that he had with the Eckharts, he eventually began to relax even around young men, but it led them to believe that something bad happened to him at the hands of a young man. The Eckharts took him to the Catholic Church to be baptised, but this young child was lacking two things he needed. He didn't have a birth date or a name. They chose the name Scott McKinley and an April birth date. As soon as Scott had been found, the detective in charge thought of the Fronzac case from the year previous, because it was a big story. A year after it happened, a detective in another department 800 miles away immediately remembered it. The connection didn't make a lot of sense on the surface, except that Scott did appear to be around the same age as Paul would be. But why would someone kidnap a baby only to abandon him 14 months later, such a distance away? While the detective did submit Scott to the FBI as a possible match to Paul, he did continue to search nearby. Information on Scott was run in the papers in New Jersey and New York in the hopes that someone would recognise him and come forward. Only one dead-end tip did come in, though. Meanwhile, the investigation into the kidnapping of Paul continued. DNA testing wasn't possible, obviously, but there were a series of blood tests that could be used to look for different markers to either include or exclude a child as a possible match. The most straightforward of this is blood typing. If both parents had type A blood and the baby had AB, then they could exclude him as a match. But even after the blood typing would have included the child, they could also use HLA testing, which checked for proteins on blood cells. When Scott's tip came in, the FBI jumped on it. Within months of being found, the Eckerts brought Scott to the doctor for full exam and to have blood samples taken. Photographs were taken for comparisons to that single photo of Paul when he was a newborn. They even took a cast of Scott's ear to see if it matched what they could see from Paul's photo. And I know we talked a little bit about ear matching in our Nicholas Barclay episode. They had tested around 10,000 other children, and all of them were excluded. And in February of 1966, all the tests and analysis were done with Scott and the Fronzacs, and Scott was officially the only child they tested who could not be excluded. This isn't DNA, remember. Not being excluded is not the same thing as definitely being Paul, but it was as close as they could get. And in March, they sent the Fronzak family a letter asking them for more blood samples for further testing. And the testing was conducted in three different hospital labs. But the FBI reported that the results were contradictory. Regardless, they decided the Fronzak should meet Scott and see if an identification could be made. There's this idea that, you know, they would know their own child. Prior to this meeting, though, they started paperwork for the Fronzaks to adopt Scott. It turns out that without definitive proof that Scott was Paul, they couldn't simply say, that's Paul, and take him home. They actually had to legally adopt Scott for him to become Paul and for them to be his parents. Doing this paperwork ahead of time makes sense in the idea that if this if Scott was Paul, they wouldn't have to then wait to do the paperwork to take him home. They could take him home right away. 
but nothing was signed so they could still say no. But you have to wonder if all this preparation to bring him home didn't provide some kind of bias in their minds. They prepared for him to come home. So how much harder would it have been to go see this cute little boy who, you know, might be their son and say no, and then leave New Jersey with their empty arms? They didn't say no. As soon as Dora saw Scott, she yelled, my God, that is my baby. Not everyone was as convinced as Dora and Chester, though. According to the attorney who helped with the adoption, the only doubts were with the police. It does seem like an incredible story, though. A 40-year-old woman snuck into a hospital in Chicago, steals a baby, travels nearly 800 miles to New Jersey, raises the baby for 14 months, and then abandons him outside the store. The FBI and Chicago police, on a whole, did not really believe that little Scott was Paul, but at this point, why stop it? Here we have a little boy who has been abandoned and a couple who has lost their son. They believe he was Paul. They were good people who would be, on a whole, good parents. If after the two days the Fronzaks had to think over if they wanted to continue with this adoption, if they were ready to be parents to this parentless little boy, well, why not just let it all unfold? And the case was essentially closed. The child was recovered. Let's just forget that some woman got away with a brazen and bold kidnapping, which is illegal even if the child was returned, and someone abandoned a child on the street, which is also illegal even if the child finds a safe home. The process of Scott becoming Paul wasn't the only change in the home. The Fronzacs had yet another son, David, who was born six months after Paul came to live with them. Their third son, but the only one they got to see take his first steps and say his first word. Paul, in his memoir, The Foundling, he tells of David seeming to be the favourite and to have a deeper connection with their parents than he had. There is some implication that perhaps this is because Dora and Chester did hold some doubts that Paul was their infant Paul. If his perception was right and David was in some ways the favoured child and look, who knows, right? But it could be because of their doubts, but it could also be in part because they had David from birth and without the trauma of the separation for two years. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that in the late 1960s, they probably didn't have access to family counselling to deal with the issues that Paul or they might have had after a long separation and then the subsequent reunion. I got the impression they were given their baby back and basically expected to move on with their life. But this is a massive trauma that just can't be fixed by handing them a toddler. I guess I'm just saying that if they did favour David, it may be more complicated and nuanced than simply that they didn't feel Paul was really theirs. Today, it's common and encouraged in most Western societies to be open and honest with a child about his adoption, but this wasn't necessarily the norm in the 1960s. While Paul was technically adopted, Doran Chester believed him to be their biological son, and they didn't tell him otherwise, and they also didn't tell him about his kidnapping or his discovery. Paul found this out on his own while he was doing what bored 10-year-olds do best. He was snooping. He was down in the basement one December looking for Christmas presents and he found a few small boxes in the back of a crawl space and they were behind a few other items. The boxes all contained yellowed newspaper clippings 
and old letters and cards. The cards were well wishes sent to Dora from all over the world after the kidnapping, and the newspaper clippings were about the kidnapping and the eventual finding of a young boy in Newark. It took Paul a few minutes to completely process what he was reading. He went to his mother to ask about them. She told him, yes, he was kidnapped, he was found, they loved him, and that was that. It wasn't his business, he shouldn't have been snooping. And he countered with what I think was a pretty fair point that it was his business if he was the one who was kidnapped. But the conversation was over. And it stayed over for decades. I recommend reading The Foundling because it is part true crime mystery, but it's also part memoir. And we're skipping over a lot of the memoir parts. But Paul's life, his ups and downs that were shaped by this ever-present wondering if he really did belong to his own family, it's fascinating to read about. And it adds a lot of depth to the story that we're not getting into. But we're actually going to just fast forward uh, decades till Paul was 45 years old. His wife was pregnant with his first child, and her doctor asked a very commonplace question, except it made Paul freeze. She asked him, what is your medical history? Of course, Paul had doctors ask him this before, and he would give the Franzak family medical history as you'd expect. But this time it was different for him because the doctor wasn't asking about him. The doctor was asking on behalf of his unborn daughter. Now, all of a sudden, the weight of his doubts of where he came from paralyzed him. He couldn't answer his own family medical history because he had to admit that he really didn't know for sure. He decided that he wanted to know, but he talked himself out of it for some time. DNA tests were expensive. He'd have to confront his parents, get their samples for DNA comparison. But eventually home kits came on the market and he was in a drugstore and noticed they were about $30. And these are the kits where you do the cheek swab at home and you mail it into their lab. He decided to buy one, but he still needed to get his parents to consent to it. They were visiting one weekend, and he and his wife decided that was the perfect time to ask them. Except the weekend kept going, and he still didn't ask them. And the weekend was nearly over. It was an hour before he was supposed to drop them off at the airport to go home. And he finally was out with it. He just said, have you ever doubted that I was really your son? And his mom answered a lot more calmly than he thought. And she said, yes, she did wonder. And he asked her if she wanted to know if there was a way to find out for sure. And she said yes. His father had stayed quiet this whole time. But Paul jumped on this chance. He got the kits and there, right at his kitchen table, they swabbed their mouths for the DNA tests. And it was a lot easier than he thought to get them to say yes. Until his phone rang a few hours later when his parents had gotten back to Chicago. They had changed their minds. They didn't want to know. They didn't give a reason. They just didn't want him to send the test in. And I can understand that. They've been a family for so long. You you don't need that biological connection to be a parent and a child. Mightn't have mattered to them at this stage. Right. And it would have opened up a lot if he was not their son. That means their baby was still missing. And that is, that's a lot to ask someone to go back through after they've closed that chapter. Their baby was lost. He was found. They moved on. 
and now you're saying maybe their baby's still lost. That That's a lot. And Paul's wife was torn. She felt that Paul deserved to know if he wanted to know, but she didn't want him to go against his parents' wishes either. I mean, they could find out and just not tell his parents, but that seems like a very big secret to keep. In a moment of frank honesty, which I appreciated throughout this memoir, Paul said he actually wasn't torn in this way. He was fine with disregarding his parents' request. He was more afraid of the what next if the results came back that he was not Paul. He was not the person he thought he was. And that leads us to this right to know for children who are adopted or children who are found and in this case placed with a family they thought was theirs, which is an extremely rare occurrence. I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the U.S. we do have closed adoptions. We have it so that adults are not do not have access to their original birth certificate, to the names of their birth parents, to their medical history beyond what their birth parents filled out with the adoption agency. And a lot of this is this idea of either protecting the adoptive parents or the biological parents, but where does that leave the the adoptee, the person who doesn't know their medical history? And it really is a double-edged sword. I mean, you do have the right to know your background as far as potential diseases and illnesses and the like, but then you also should have the right to privacy and that should be respected because then what? Then major companies can argue that they have the right to access your DNA for insurance reports and compensation claims. I don't know the answer. I think that while Paul deserved the right to know who his family is, the Fronzacs deserved the right to deny the request. So Paul did send in the test. A few more weeks passed when he got the phone call from the lab. There was 0% chance that he was the child of Dora or Chester. The words used were no remote chance. As prepared as Paul was for that answer, look, he wasn't really prepared at all. As much of his identity, his name, his birthday, his grandparents being immigrants, all of that was now blank with nothing to replace it. And right there at his desk at work, he broke down and cried. After the initial sadness, the shock or even panic subsided, he had a mission. There are two big questions here. If he wasn't baby Paul, where is Paul? And if he wasn't baby Paul, then who was he? He was christened Scott in foster care and Paul in the Fronzac home, but he had a name before that. He decided to solve both of these mysteries, but to do so, he knew he would need to engage the public and that would mean media. And not just Chicago where baby Paul was kidnapped from or Las Vegas where grown Paul now lived, it had to be nationwide. He worked with a reporter to put together a story for it, and as the air date got closer, Paul still hadn't told his parents. It was going to air locally in Las Vegas, bit with the high-profile nature of the initial kidnapping, he knew it was going to take off in the press, and that's what he wanted to happen. So the night before the story was going to air locally in Las Vegas, he emailed his parents. In this email, he appealed to them to be with him on his journey to find baby Paul. Four days later, his mother called him and she was angry. One of the things she said was, we have to relive the nightmare again. 
His father got on the phone and had some choice words for him and then hung up on him. Part of the nightmare she met was the media nightmare. The people yelling questions at her as she was mourning the loss of her second child in a year's time. The ability to go anywhere without someone asking her how she was doing. And now Paul was torn about what he was doing. He felt badly that his parents were having to relive something that was so traumatic that they carried it with them for 50 years and it was because of his actions. But he still went forward. He still wanted to know who he was, but he hadn't anticipated quite how painful this would be for his parents. The FBI had to look into this as well. He was a closed case being broadcast on national TV as unsolved. So in 2013, the FBI reopened the Paul Fronzak case nearly 50 years after Paul, the original Paul, was kidnapped. While Dora and Chester were still not on board with the search and not supporting the grown foundling Paul's search, they were completely cooperative with the FBI's reinvestigation. But still, this is 50 years later. Like we talked about recently in the Maria Ridoff case, this is a long time for witnesses. Those who still alive were being asked to remember something from an extremely long time ago. The grown poor was thrilled initially. The FBI found 10 boxes of evidence from the original investigation that survived an oversight. They were actually awaiting destruction and someone along the way just forgot about them. Only this was now an open FBI investigation and grown Paul had nothing to do with it. Oddly enough, the same DNA test that got the ball rolling is the same that cut him out of the case. This wasn't the case of a young boy found in New Jersey. This was a kidnapping of the infant Paul Fronzak. Grown Paul was the infant in another state himself at the time of the kidnapping, so he was no longer part of the official Paul Fronzak story. It's kind of a odd spot to be in to have grown up thinking that you had been kidnapped, found out that you were actually not the kidnapped person, but now that the FBI is investigating that kidnapping, you have nothing to do with it. You're completely cut out of it. It's it's an odd place to be. And another thing that the national media attention brought in were calls and tips. Some of it was just support. A lot of people who had been adopted or had grown up for whatever reason away from their birth families, they could understand Paul's questions. Some were tips from psychics who had visions or promptings of where Paul, the infant Paul, was or about grown Paul's birth family. And some tips were people who felt they or their family member was the baby Paul. There were some who matched enough that the FBI did DNA comparisons on them. They weren't matches, but their stories matched enough, which is interesting to me that there were that many, I guess, shady adoptions at the time. One person who reached out after seeing the story was Janet Eckert, the daughter in the home where Paul was taken care of as Scott McKinley. Obviously, she didn't have any more information on his origins as anyone else, but Paul was able to meet her, see the house, hear these stories of how they cared for him and what they felt for him. It didn't answer the big question, but it did give him a piece of his life that he hadn't had before. And this is quite common with foster children who move a lot. 
He fortunately did not move nearly as much as some kids in care. As far as we know at this point, he lived with his birth family until he was abandoned. Then he moved to the Eckerts and then the Franzaks. Not even three and in three homes sounds like a lot, but I know a now grown man who was in three foster placements before 10 months old. This moving around can leave gaps if the foster parents don't provide the pictures or the the journaling for the children as they pass through their homes. The Eckerts did give the Franzaks quite a bit of information on Paul's time with them, but it hadn't been passed on to him. They did later give him a lot of this information, but it probably still meant a lot to hear it from Janet herself, someone who loved him and cared for him when he was little. Meanwhile, Paul continued with his both his own search for his own identity and his search for baby Paul. With the help of Ancestry.com and other genealogists, Paul began his search in earnest. The first part was easiest. He submitted his own DNA to Ancestry.com's database as well as to 23andMe. To find Paul, he would need his parents or brother David to submit His parents were obviously still upset with him. They did not want this, and while they would continue to cooperate with the FBI and make vague statements to the media saying that they wished Paul luck on his journey, they weren't speaking to him at this point. His brother was the first to open... His brother was at first open to doing the test, but suddenly changed his mind because he didn't understand how Paul could do this to their parents, and he too stopped talking to Paul. The DNA test to find baby Paul was a long shot anyway. It would mean Paul or a child of his would have to have entered their DNA into a database, but without a Fronzac in the database, there was no way this was going to work. So the focus was on building grown Paul's family tree. The first match he had through a DNA database was a distant cousin without much to go on, but another match which was a closer match came in. A man named Alan had submitted his DNA and was matched to Paul as a possible second cousin. Second cousins share a set of great-grandparents. We only have four sets of great-grandparents each, so it was a matter for the forensic genealogist to figure out which of Alan's four sets most closely matched Paul. But when they went to view Alan's family tree on Ancestry.com, it was blank. Alan hadn't submitted his DNA because he was simply filling out a family history and trying to connect with distant relatives. He was trying to find out who he was because Alan himself was adopted. While Alan ended up not being that immediate breakthrough they had first hoped, he was still a match and following his path would help. I'll just use this moment one more time to plug Paul's book, The Foundling, because if you have any interest in familial DNA or forensic genealogy or using it to solve a mystery, you have to read this. We don't have time to get into all the steps between Alan and Paul's family, but I was completely sucked into this. Through DNA testing and honestly just great investigation on the part of the genealogists working the case, they eventually wound up through several steps. I really read the book. It's really great. But they eventually found a couple named Gilbert and Marie Rosenthal of Atlantic City, New Jersey. When the team found this direct familial link, both Gilbert and Marie were deceased. The Rosenthals had had five children, two daughters, a set of boy-girl twins, and another son. The twins were born on October 27, 1963 at Atlantic City Hospital. 
Jill Lynn was born first, followed 14 minutes later by Jack Thomas. Yes, the twins' names were Jack and Jill. Extended family reported that Marie had issues with alcoholism, and Gilbert had recently left their family, leaving Marie home with five kids under the age of five. The twins reportedly spent most of their day screaming, and some were under the impression that Marie had been told that the twins had intellectual disabilities. Somewhere along the line, Marie and Gilbert decided to send the twins to live with family because they couldn't handle them. If Gilbert's family asked where the twins were, they were with Marie's family. If Marie's family asked, the twins were with Gilbert's family. The truth of the matter is, Jack was left in a stroller outside of an upscale shopping center, and Jill, well, let's say Paul started this journey looking for a missing infant and his own identity. He found his missing identity. He was Jack Thomas Rosenthal. But now he has two missing children, both Paul Franzak and Jill Rosenthal. Both of his sets of parents were missing children, but unlike the Franzaks, it started to look like the Rosenthals might have known what happened to Jill. After the twins, quote-unquote, left, Gilbert returned to the family, and he and Marie remained married for the rest of his life, and they raised their three remaining children, none of whom had memories of the twins existing. Extended family members were eventually told just not to mention the twins anymore, and, and they didn't. The dynamics of this family on the whole, would make an entire episode of itself on its own. Another reason to read the book. But I think that Jack, who became Scott, who became Paul, was honestly saved by being abandoned. I know it left him unfulfilled in some ways, but the Fronzacks gave him what his birth family was not able to and possibly helped him end the cycle of abuse for himself and for his own family. There was a report by a family member that she thought the twins were being abused and had actually reported it to a doctor. But as was the norm in those days, she was told to mind her own business. But it does need to be said that when Jack was found, he did not show signs of physical abuse. An interesting thing to note in this finding is that this made Paul seven months older than he thought he was. Every child develops differently, but the difference between a 14-month-old and a 20-month-old is quite big. It is possible that either due to being a twin or due to neglect, he was slightly behind developmentally. He may have been small for his age. We don't really know, but it does explain why he had such a huge language explosion when he was in the foster home. And this apparent precocious talking, he was actually closer to two. So that leaves us without Jill. Surely if a girl between 14 and 21 months was left abandoned anywhere on the East Coast at the same time, it would have been connected or reported. There is no death certificate for Jill. No, no family member with custody. No records of Jill Rosenthal after her birth certificate. Even a family photo album, which was described as a grandmother's brag book full of pictures of her grandchildren... A family member found that and thinking maybe she could provide a baby picture for Paul, looked in it and saw that there were two pages that were ripped out. The twins were completely erased from the family. Jack was left clean, well-dressed, and in an upscale area. So the person who left him wanted him to be found. They wanted him to be cared for. So why not Jill? 
there is a family story that some people reported that one of the twins had been quote-unquote dropped was dropped cover for a more serious incident that led to Jill's death. That might explain why Jack was abandoned. It's easier to say that both twins were living elsewhere than to keep everyone else from telling Jack that he ever had a twin sister who was no longer there as he grew up. Or to hide all his baby pictures to erase Jill from them. It would be easier to erase both of them than just one of them. They wanted Jack to be found, so I have to believe that whatever happened to Jill, even if it was the result of abuse, was probably not a purposeful murder. Obviously, I can't say, but that's what I lean towards. If it was purposeful, it would have happened to Jack as well. And, I mean, there's always the possibility that Jack and Jill were left with someone else who abandoned them, but... You'd expect the parents to acknowledge their existence and not try to erase them entirely if that was the case. And that also leaves infant Paul. We still don't know what happened to him. He's still missing. The FBI have DNA tested several men who matched Paul's age and basic description. At least one man so closely matched the age progression photo of Paul that it was a big shock when he didn't match. There is one active lead that is discussed in the book, but we have to go back to something that will be familiar to some of our US listeners. Ronald Reagan's 1976 speech talking about the welfare queen. In an argument in favour of welfare reform, Reagan told the story of Linda Taylor, who was a Chicago woman, and she used multiple identities, addresses and fake dead husbands to collect more government benefits. One thing Linda was known for was being able to alter her appearance enough to appear different ages and different races. It was also reported that she kidnapped children, sometimes the children of people she knew who would let her babysit, from which she would then not return the kids. And she was twice arrested for walking off with children, though no convictions occurred when the children were returned. The children were probably part of a scheme to collect even more money. The plan was to use the physical presence of children to prove they were hers and in her home. That would increase the food stamps and other benefits that she would receive. But it's possible she was selling the children to hopeful adoptive families. Her son reports babies being in the house for a while and then they were suddenly gone. He was given no information from his mother on where they came from or where they went. That Paul Fronzak was one of these babies isn't a new claim. In the 1970s, Linda's ex-husband said that she suddenly had a newborn baby she claimed was hers and that she hadn't known she was pregnant prior to going into labour. The baby appeared to be white and was named Tiger. Linda had a birth certificate for the baby born four months before Paul a baby she told police was living with foster parents. But the birth certificate was signed by a doctor who had previously signed a forged birth certificate for Linda for another scheme she was running. Linda also had nurse's uniform, including a hat. A man who lived with her at the time of the kidnapping later told police he thought she was involved in that kidnapping and possibly others as he wasn't the only unexplained infant in the home. The vague description of the nurse roughly matches Linda if she was wearing a wig, and she likely owned dozens of them. I think this would also match 
because she was shopping around for a baby that would look like her. And we know that infant Paul had very dark hair. So she was trying to find a baby that she could pass off as possibly light-skinned African-American. Paul would have been a better choice than a blonde-haired baby. Exactly. That makes sense. And the timing also fits for this tiger being Paul. So the second step in this would be to find tiger. Linda Taylor is deceased and her son appears to be hard to find. But eventually a tip came in that sounded like other tips. The woman's grandmother, who was known as Peggy as one of her aliases, suddenly had a baby in the home with no explanation of how he got there. And that's how most of these men who had been DNA tested to match with infant Paul had become suspicious. They didn't have really a well-documented adoption history. And this is pretty much what's happening here. And this wasn't the only baby that her grandmother had taken home. The timing matched up with Paul's kidnapping, but the really interesting piece is that this child grew up and was called Tiger, even though his name was John. So what are the odds that Linda Taylor had a sudden baby called Tiger in Chicago and a woman named Peggy in Texas suddenly had a baby named Tiger? According to grown Paul, he compared pictures of Peggy and Linda Taylor, and he said they looked similar enough that they could have been sisters. And Peggy grew up in Illinois. She also had nurse's uniform. Were Peggy and Linda somehow connected? Somehow jointly conspired to kidnap and hide baby Paul? Did one of them kidnap him and then did Linda kidnap him and then send him to Peggy? So the best way to resolve this would be to find a DNA test Tiger, except that Tiger has passed away. He died of a gunshot wound, reportedly self-inflicted at the age of 15. He's buried in Amarillo, Texas, and there have been some movements towards getting approval for an exhumation, and this case will be on our list to update you as there are updates on that. This is just one of the saddest stories I've ever heard. There are so many unanswered questions, so many destroyed lives and families. The story just keeps on snowballing into a bigger and bigger tragedy. It is really interesting to think about how this unfolded and how some of the trauma involved could have been helped if it was approached differently. Paul is back speaking with his parents and not his father has dementia, but this has given him and his mom more of an open relationship because now this information is out there and they can talk about it and she's not hiding her doubts and trying to pretend everything's okay and he's not stifling his questions. So his relationship with the Franzaks has improved through this process, through getting the truth out there. But in the end, we're still missing two babies. And for nearly 50 years, nobody even knew to look for them. So we want to thank Paul Franzak and Howard Books, a division of Simon & Schuster, for bringing this story to publication and for providing us with the books so that we could cover this. This book is part true crime, part mystery, part memoir. It's fascinating, as I've recommended throughout the episode. There's so much in there 
to to read and to learn about and to think about. It's available pretty much anywhere books and audiobooks are available. And we want to thank some of our five-star reviewers. Rosie from the They Walk Among Us podcast. So major shout out, not that they need our help, but a major shout out to their podcast. You guys really should listen to it. It's great. She does a lot of the behind the scenes work, even though Ben is the voice of the podcast. Rosie, I'm not saying she does all the work, but we'll see. She's the brains behind it. And congratulations to them on their British podcasting award for true crime podcasting. Also, KJ KJ is how I'm guessing you say that. Thank you for your review. And Starly Safari, Califred, and Frosty Bottle. We really appreciate those reviews. It's really nice of you to have taken the time to do that. We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash insightpod. We put up a new bonus episode every single month. So we want to send out some thank yous. Jeremy from the Judge and Jeremy podcast, another podcast you guys should be listening to. And a thank you to Aaron W. Thank you, Annie F. and Gemma F. And also to Allison. We appreciate your ongoing support. You can find us on Facebook. Just search Insight Pod. If you search for our group, Insight is two words. Twitter is at InsightfulPod. I am usually the one you'll talk to there. Instagram is Allie at InsightPod. We have our website, InsightPod.com. But if you want to email us directly, that's InsightfulPod at gmail.com. And we will see you back in one week.